Good morning and welcome to the Pastor's Bible Class at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere. Uh, you'll be hearing this on Sunday, March 22nd, live on the air or recorded later through podcasts and their website. But today I'm actually at home like many of people um, working from home trying to record this. So I'm actually recording this on Friday. But we are pleased to be able to have Bible study together and thankful for the opportunity to study God's Word. So before we get any further, uh, let's just begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity that we get to gather around your Word and wherever we are and whenever we're um, gathered together, when we're in your word, Lord, we are blessed. We are blessed to be able to study your word, to hear what your ha- word has for us. And especially today, as we look at these scripture readings, to hear that your word has hope and life for each and every one of us. So, Lord, may you strengthen each of us as we gather around your word in this time now. And may your spirit bless us and strengthen us in our faith towards you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Totally forgot to mention, uh, my name is Pastor Kevin Thompson and one of the pastors at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere. And in light of all the um, various orders that have been put in place by our county executives, we are not meeting in person for worship right now. Um, You're hearing this because we can do things digitally and days ahead and online and on the radio. So we're blessed with these all these opportunities. But uh, all that being said, let's get into the word because that is why we are here. So uh, for our Bible class, we typically look at the lectionary lessons that are for the coming week. So today we'll be looking at the assigned lectionary scripture readings for the for Sunday, March 29th, which will be the fifth Sunday in Lent. And the first one we'll look at is Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 1 through 14. For some people, it could be a rather familiar one. For some, maybe not. It doesn't matter which category you're in. We get to get into God's Word again and hopefully hear something new that He has for us. So just to begin the scripture reading from Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 1 through 14. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. 
and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Here ends our Old Testament reading for Sunday, March 29th. So today we get to get into Ezekiel chapter 37. Uh, Just a beginning, because always we need to remember our context. We'll do this briefly, um, because we're already in chapter 37. But this is written um, because this is the prophecy of Ezekiel. So we have Ezekiel, who's a prophet of the Lord. And if you care to turn back, um, whether it be now or later, uh, go back to Ezekiel chapter 1 at some point and just remind yourself who Ezekiel is. If you do, you'll see that in uh, chapter 1, the first three verses, we see Ezekiel is, well, he's a prophet of the Lord because some terms that are used in those first three verses are that the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. So the key words there are the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. So again, as always, it's not like these, these men who are prophets just said, oh, I'm going to stand up and do this. No, they were brought, that God literally brought his word to them. He's the one who lifted, who raised them up to be used and served for his purposes. And it also says there that Ezekiel was the priest who's son of Buzi. So both Ezekiel and likely his father were both priests, uh, especially at that time, priestly duties were kind of a, uh, for lack of better terms, a family ordeal, kind of done father to son and father to son on from there. Um, so Ezekiel is a prophet because the word of the Lord came to him. Also, it says in those first three verses, and we hear it in our scripture verses here, that the hand of the Lord was upon him. Um, and that's a term that's used in Ezekiel seven times. And it's an expression that's used to convey, just again, in a different way to say, um, that God goes to Ezekiel, that Ezekiel has received something from God. And specifically in Ezekiel 37, as I've already read for us, Ezekiel receives a vision. Um, uh, we'll get into that a l- possibly a little bit more. But uh, with prophets, it's, it's kind of odd, I think, in our world today uh, because we don't think of receiving visions I think in in general standards, if you told someone, oh, I saw a vision, they might think you're crazy. They might think you're seeing things and say, whoa, who's the crazy guy who thinks he's seeing something? Uh, But it's not like that. Um, It's even though a vision may seem odd for us to think about um, or seem impossible, we know with God nothing is possible. And he used to, in the Old Testament, speak to his people more frequently in ways that to us today just, just don't happen as frequently. Again, we could remember God could speak to us in vision. He could come to you. He could give you an oracle. It's not that he couldn't. It's just that in the New Testament, he's chosen to speak through his son rather than these other visions. But too much on that. So we'll go on. Uh, We have Ezekiel the prophet. And as I said, this is a a vision. Some other um, commentators use the word oracle or a dream. Essentially all the same concept to convey that God is giving him um, this thing to see so that he can not only teach Ezekiel, but really teach and share some incredible hope and life with his people. But I get ahead of myself. So um, Ezekiel chapter 37, uh, beginning in these verses, it says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, full of dry bones. So again, we've already kind of touched on that. um, But the hand of the Lord is upon him, and the spirit of the Lord set him down. So key things here are, again, this isn't Ezekiel just going off, going crazy, um, but God is directly giving him this vision. Um, Then we get into that, and let's just look at, let's just take for a second and think about literally what he's seen. 
that we have this vision, and, and really, he's, God's showing him this. And so think of the literal picture that's before him. Because sometimes I think with these visions, we think, oh, no, this is fake. It's just kind of made up. It's all metaphorical. And yes, God's using this vision to teach him something. That Then we'll get to the spiritual teaching. But also, he uses these images because these images evoke very literal things in our mind, too. He's in this valley, so this area, and it's full of bones. Okay? Now, bones is something that we can all think about. We all have bones, okay? Now, we're not all doctors, but we all have them. Uh, we use them. They're part of our bodies. Uh, most of us went through education. Um, at sometimes, even on the mas- most basic levels, you had to ha- learn the anatomy and learn about bones and what they look like and the like. But you have these bones in this valley, and it says not only that they're there, but at the end of verse 2, they were very dry, and some translators take this as utterly dry, very, very dry. The point is, is these dry bones are dead. And, 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 I, and we always want to be careful. I always want to be careful when I talk about um, the, the imagery that God uses in Scripture and we use dead. Because, you know, those of us who have experienced death of loved ones alike, it's, it's a very sensitive topic, as it should be. And we'll actually get that in, uh, more in the gospel lesson here. But the fact is, is... There's no life in these, and, and they're utterly lifeless. And not just is it a bone of, uh, of any sense, but it's been there for a while. It's decayed. There's no hope of it on its own being used really for any good purpose. Uh, which, again, if we just kind of throw out there, it could sound crass to someone, but we're doing this for a good reason because we'll get to the hope that God gives. But jump ahead of myself. So verse 3, it's interesting, right? You get this vision. Ezekiel, God gives Ezekiel this vision. And he's telling them all this stuff. And and Ezekiel says in verse 3, or no, God says to Ezekiel, he says, Son of man, can these bones live? Before we get to the question, um, he addresses Ezekiel as son of man, which is significant for the book of Ezekiel. Um, it's used, I believe some sources say, 93 times in the book. But regardless of the number of times, what's more important is that God does not directly address Ezekiel by his name. Which is, of course, not to say that God doesn't know it or he doesn't care. Um, but it's an interesting term that God uses to really show this contrast between God and man. As you may hear or talk about in other Bible studies, man is limited. He's weak. He's lowly. He's mortal. Compared to God who is just all-powerful and strong and divine. And this isn't a, a slam or a knock against Ezekiel like he's um, a bad person compared to others. But... Rather, as we see throughout the prophecies given, especially to Ezekiel, God wants to contrast mankind and God. Because he wants, I mean, you've got the people who have rebelled and you've got this exile and captivity, all these kinds of things that are a result of the fact that mankind cannot get out of these terrible situations on their own. And the only one who can bring hope and life to the terrible situation that mankind is in is God. And so God calling him by this phrase isn't to be derogatory, but more so, I think, uh, based on scripture and and research, that more so to point to, look at how awesome God is. We're limited, we're weak, we're lowly, we're mortal. And yet we have a God who comes to us, comes to his people and says, I give you my power. I strengthen you. I raise you up. It's amazing. So I think rather than just seeing a negative, oh, he's trying to slam Ezekiel. Oh, he's saying, hey, look. You don't have that power. You are limited. 
but I can do this. So, um, verse three, he says, son of man, can these bones live? Which is interesting because then I don't, I don't know. Um, we never know how uh, the tones are said because we only have the, the written word and can only assume certain tones based on grammar and structure. But to me, I hear this. It kind of seems a little bit like, well, duh, you know, God, uh, not in a mean way. But he says, verse three, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, oh, Lord, you know, <laughs> which it's just, I think, just kind of funny because God does know. And a good point, it's a point that bolsters Ezekiel's trust in God. He's saying he knows that God knows everything. Uh, some of the cross-references here will send you to the Gospel of John or to the Revelation, uh, Book of Revelation, because in there you have some other passages that just attest to this same truth, that God knows all. Um, and for those of you who are listening this morning uh, on the radio or the internet or whatever, however you're doing it, the app, you too likely know the same truth. God knows all. He really, really does. Um, and as I talk about with youth, it's kind of a weird thing to think about, right? How does God know everything? Uh, he knows what I'm doing. He knows what I've done. He knows what I'm going to do before I've even done it. It's just an odd, strange thing. But it's not some weird, strange thing It's or creepy thing. It's a, it's a beautiful truth to say that our God knows all things because he uses that divine knowledge to care for and love and protect his people. But we could spend a whole Bible study on that. So let's keep going. So um, he says, you know, so God says, prophesy over these bones. Um, and he says, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. So key words here are prophesy and hear the word of the Lord. So what's about to happen is not of any power of Ezekiel's, but strictly in all power resting in God. God is the one who has the power, who brings this life to these dry bones. And right there at the end of verse four, it's as it says, hear the word of of the Lord. And so it's the word of God that will bring the miraculous change we're about to see. So that says the Lord God at the beginning of verse five, which is another key phrase that points to the fact that this is not Ezekiel, but God who's doing this. And this phrase, thus says the Lord, is very commonly used um, for other messengers as well, that God's messengers, as recorded in the scripture, when they say this, it's clearly making it known that they're the messenger, they're the vehicle, the means through which God is going to bring change or miracle or life or whatever you could fill in the blanks there. Um, so verse 5, God said, thus says the Lord to his bones, and he causes breath and life and sinews to come and cover. So he tells them what to do. Then we get to verse 7, Ezekiel does what he's told to do. And as I prophesied, there's a sound and a rattling and the bones come together bone to bone. And then behold, there's sinews on them and flesh came upon them and skin covered them. But there's no breath. Now take a second for there. And and before we get to the whole breath thing, just look at what happened. And again, think of this. I mean, look at, think of this on the literal level at, at what he's seeing. You got these super dry bones, dead with no life in them, laying around, scattered, piled up. Now they're literally coming together and you got the sinews and you got the flesh and the skin. You've got these bodies that are being made right before your eyes. I know it seems hard to, to truly, to truly imagine it, but just the miracle that's here, these lifeless bones laying around and now they're formed into bodies. But for a second, we need to to look at this because this is where I struggled when I was reading through the scripture. 
And I think it's okay to admit, right? We all struggle. Uh, we should all struggle and wrestle with scripture. Um, and I was confused at first when I read this because it says there's no breath in them. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, wait, so God says, God speaks his word, and yet it seemed as if it's incomplete. But that's not the case, okay? So it's not like God's word only did half the job and left um, the job half undone. That's not what happened. But rather, God allowed, his word did so much creation, but now allows him to teach even more because, and do even more. Because here he says in verse 9, prophesy to the breath. Now, that's interesting, and that's the one I wrestle with, too. What does it mean to prophesy to the breath? And here we get to this concept um, that's talked about. Um, I was listening to some lectionary at lunch by some of our seminary professors. And this breath is this term that's used interchangeably, really, um, in different ways throughout Ezekiel to talk about um, two different things. See, in Hebrew, this word breath is ruach, which can either mean the ruach, that Hebrew word ruach can mean breath, or it also means spirit. And so you have this duality of this Hebrew word that is really played upon back and forth, even within this passage alone, to talk about the physical life that is breath, the breath that's physical life, of these breathing bodies. And you've also got also have the ruach, the spirit that comes to these bodies, the spiritual life. And so you've got both of these at play here. And so now it's here that prophesy to the breath, likely more to even the spirit of the Lord, prophesy. And here, I know I made that quick switch, but I think here he's talking about prophesying not only the word of the Lord, but the spirit. I mean, they're one, but to have the spirit of the Lord come into these bodies. Because then it's the spirit of the Lord that comes into these bodies and gives life. Which allows us to talk about another amazing truth um, and part facet of scripture that we could spend um, this time and more on. But that the spirit is what gives life. The Holy Spirit is what gives life. It's a truth we see elsewhere in Scripture, and it's a truth that we confess in the, the creeds, but it's the Spirit that comes in these bodies and gives life. And there we see at the end of verse 10, now with the Spirit giving life, there's an exceedingly great army. And here is another point where I think we need to stop and think about this literally and look at what's here. Dry bones, dead and lifeless, Become bodies with flesh and bones together. And now you've got the breath that's made an exceedingly great army. This army that, so what used to be dry bones, useless and dead, is now a great army, which arguably would be a victorious, strong army. And how did it go from dead and lifeless, but to victorious and strong? But through the word of the Lord and the spirit of the Lord. And that is what we see in this passage. And that's what's amazing. And the only way it got there, like I said, the Word and the Spirit, the other way to put that is from God's power. So, I know we're spending long on the Old Testament. Tend to do that. <laughs> we get into these Old, these old Testament, this first lesson, and, and get so excited about it, we dig so much in. So let me wrap up the last part of this, because um, I've kind of talked about the latter few verses. But I want to make sure we have time for our other two scripture readings. Uh, but verse 11 through 14 of Ezekiel 37 Really, now Ezekiel takes this vision that God gave him and he explains it to the people, right? It says there, um, verse 11, he says, these bones are the whole house of Israel. So he says, all right, this is the vision I had. I told it, if you didn't get it, if you weren't picking it up, now here, let me tell you, this is what it is. Um, these bones are the whole house of Israel. 
God's people are the dry, dead, lifeless bones. Uh, I wouldn't go up to someone and say that to their face right away without some context because that doesn't sound very nice. Uh, but that's the reality, right? In their sin and in being cast off and um, in, in their exile and the like, they've become these dry bones. There's no life. There's, there's only death. And as it says, ooh, it's striking here. Verse 11, right there in the middle, it says, Behold, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We're indeed cut off. And that hope is lost. That is... That to me is a devastating statement. And I would pray that none of you who are listening have ever said that or would ever say it. Uh, But if you have or if you've known someone you know, that's a devastating point to be at. That's an incredibly low point. To say there's no hope, that's terrible. But he says, say to them, the Lord God, God will... As it says there in verse 12, God will open your graves and raise you from your graves. I'll bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I'm the Lord. So this lifeless people who's, like, who's lost their hope is now going to be raised up. So from death to life, they're going to be brought into the land. And I know today it may not bear as much weight, but remember in Old Testament, land had a much stronger um, meaning to it in the sense that um, God multiple times promised land. I mean, right? Go back to the Old Testament people. He gave them the promised land. And so it's this, this key phrase here that to us, you're like, okay, great. You get some land, some property. But remember, context is that this land was a, a source and a place of, of hope and promise and God's providence. Okay? So God's going to not only raise them up, he's going to give them hope and, and, and promise. But then he also says, in verse 14, I'll put my spirit within you and you shall live. So he's going to take them from death to life. And how? By his spirit. And not just his spirit coming to like be with them once or like give them a kick and get them kick started. But his spirit who's with them, within them. And because of all this, you see this phrase that's used multiple times. I didn't count three or four here in this passage. And numerous times elsewhere in Ezekiel. You hear this phrase that because of all these things, you, the people of God, shall know that I am the Lord. And to know that he is the Lord is a statement of faith. To say that they will have faith in him. That seeing these things, receiving these things, he gives them faith. And also, I think it's a powerful statement that tells us to say that he's the Lord, you're knowing one, he's God. And to say that he's Lord, he's in control, he's over you. And he's powerful And really so much more than that. To say and confess that he is the Lord, that's a powerful thing. So a couple closing comments on this. I think it's incredibly, um, just it's just God timing. I think it's one of those things where you say it's like a God timing. That um, I'm sitting in my home recording this on a Friday uh, to be aired on a Sunday amidst a week where people are... um, now, many people working from home, you got parents trying to figure out how to homeschool their children uh, and figure out how does a family, do we all sit in our home together um, and do this and people going through all this social distancing. And I'm not saying negative to do that, right? The, the government is, is guiding us and we need to, to understand the, the severity of the situation. And so going through these things, but my point in saying is that all of this is causing all this extra concern and fear and worry and at, at what other better time do we need to hear from God himself that he's the Lord, that he's in control, that he's going to give life, 
He's going to give hope. I mean, this passage, I think, is just like God timing that here we are reading this, studying this together, because God is saying, look, you've got life and hope through me, through my word and through my spirit. And here through Ezekiel, he speaks this prophesied word, the spoken word, but I'm sitting here with my Bible open and I pray you are as well. If not, you're at least hearing it, but you can open his word and hear that hope and that life. And that's what we need right now. And that's what our, our, our communities, our states, our country need, really the whole world. We need to be continually reminded of the hope that we have through a God who can say, I am the Lord and I'll give my spirit to you and you'll live. And as we'll get a little bit at more so in the gospel lesson in John, today's world living may not be physical. It doesn't, God doesn't promise that we won't die. Death happens. But they'll give life that is in the spirit now and life that'll be eternal. But I get ahead of myself and we should move on to some of our other scripture passages. So the second reading uh, for next Sunday, March 29th, the epistle reading that weekend will be Romans chapter 8. So if you've got your Bibles open at home or you're on your computer or mobile, whatever you're doing, because God's Word, thankfully, can come to us in many different formats, turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 1 through 11. So Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Here ends our epistle reading for next Sunday. So we get into Romans today, and there's a strong tie, really, um, between all three of these lessons in the lectionary. As we know, sometimes the lectionary, the epistle, can take us on a different road. Uh, but here there's a very strong tie. we got spirit and life, uh, but we'll talk about that more. So, But Romans, uh, <laughs> I think it's a kind of a hard shift, right? We just came from Ezekiel, and you've got this very... Um, strong imagery, he's got this vision, and we're thinking of those dry bones, and now kind of this is what I would call more of like the doctrinal, theological teaching, Just it's just right at you, like he's just going to give you this, the doctrinal teachings rather than give you the imagery. Um, there's imagery in here, don't get me wrong, I mean when you hear certain words that 
hearkens images. But kind of Romans, Paul is just giving us straight the teachings um, in a very direct way. So when we look at these verses, I'm actually going to, I'm not necessarily going to take this verse by verse as I did the last. Um, but we see in this passage that it talks about in verse 1, those who are in Christ Jesus. And so here first, I think is a doctrinal, but also practical question for us to consider. Is that what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? And I know some of you who've heard uh, scholars or, or people who talk about the Bible can sometimes like, all right, you guys focus too much on prepositions. But there's a reason for it. And here I want to focus on this preposition in because what does it mean to be in Christ? I mean, there could be a difference if you say, well, I like Christ or um, I want to be like him or, 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 uh, or, or, or I don't know, different ones. But my point is, if we focus on what it means to be in, I think there's a couple, three things, key three things that we can look at. To be in Christ means at its core level is that you are united with him in his saving work. So to be in him is to be united, which means you're joined with, you're one with, you're in everything that is that he is. And as we often summarize, the simplest way to summarize who he is and what he is, is salvation, right? He, he is our savior. And so to be in Christ is to be united with him at the most, at the deepest level. And another way to put that, I think the second way would be to say that you believe, Right? What does it mean to be in Christ? Is I believe in Him. I'm united with Him. I believe in Him. And the third kind of level is that I'm baptized. We talk about um, the phrase "I'm baptized into Christ." That I, I'm because of my baptism, I'm now made in and part and united with Him. Uh, reminds me of Him that um, I think it's God's own child. I gladly say it. Uh, please forgive me if I'm wrong. I do love the hymnody. I just can't always quote um, as well as I could. If we were in person and I wasn't doing this from my, my home, I could probably ask one of our parishioners and they could tell me that's exactly the hymn. But anyways, I think it's God's own child. I gladly say it where it says um, in parts of the, the text of that hymn, it says, I am baptized into Christ. Um, baptized into Christ, I gladly say it. I might be mixing hymns now. Point is, it's a beautiful statement to say. Because being baptized into him, it means you're united with him in everything that he has to give. And how do we get into Christ? Again, baptism, it's not by our works. So the whole point is, it's not by us, but it's by God's means. Which is the same truth that we saw in Ezekiel, and the same truth we're going to see here in Romans, is that it's by God's means. And as we see in Romans 8 a lot, it's by the means of the Spirit. And so what does that look like? And that's where the following verses go. So one, then we get into, or so moving on from there in verse two and such, it talks about this law and it talks about the law and it says the law of spirit sets you free uh, for God has done with the law, um, what the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do. And then back to verse one, it says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So it's kind of confusing if you're just reading this and you could get lost and think, well, wait, does God's law matter anymore or not? Right? It says there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. Is that saying that just because I'm in Jesus, I don't have to worry about the law? No, absolutely not. See, the law constantly, as Christians, we need the law. Um, all of us in this world need the law. The law always declares that people are guilty of sin and deserve to die. It's just a fact. 
the, God, the law always declares people guilty. If you're just looking at the law, you'll never be anything but guilty. And those who are guilty of the law, as it says in Scripture, the punishment is death. Not a very fun statement to say. But thank goodness and praise God that that's not where we stop because we have the gospel. Um, and that's where we go on. That Because um, those who are in Christ Jesus, that you receive the declaration of grace and you're not guilty, but rather you're set free. Okay, And this could, um, I'm not going to get into it now, but this could lead to another discussion that maybe continue. If you're sitting in your home with some others, um, Right now, <laughs> I know we're supposed to remain in groups of less than 10 and whatnot, but if you're sitting in your home with other people, um, maybe have that conversation after this or press pause and talk about it now. Um, what does it mean to be free in Christ, right? If we're set free, what is Christian freedom? Um, that could lead a whole host of things, right? Because we, we do need to obey the law, um, but do we just throw it out the window? Does it lead into a part uh, discussion of where you think, well, I'm free in Christ, so I'll do whatever I want and let, let the sin abound because grace can abound more. Um, we know that's not what we should be doing, but um, just could be a good discussion question. What does it look, mean uh, to be set free in Christ um, and kind of that Christian freedom that we have and we get to live with? But let's go on. Um, so have a discussion with that if you wish. So then we get into the rest of this verse, uh, these verses, and we talk about the spirit and flesh. And really, you have this compare and contrast between those who are the flesh and the spirit. So, if you're in the flesh, you set your minds on the things of the flesh, which I know sounds redundant, but that's what this passage says. It says, if you're in the flesh, you think about the things in the flesh. Now, if you want a very vivid um, description of that, you can turn to Galatians chapter 5. And chapter 5 of Galatians, verse 19 and 20 says the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality impurity sensuality idolatry sorcery enmity strife jealousy fits of anger rivalries dissensions divisions envy drunkenness orgies and things like these Whew, that's a list um but those are the things of the flesh um things of the world as we might also call them and as it says in Galat- or romans 8 Romans 8 says, if you set your things on the minds of flesh, that is death. Of course, here that means spiritual death, because I think if you really look around in our world, sometimes we might even think to ourselves, be guilty of thinking this, that the people in our world who set their minds on the things of the flesh, they sure seem to be rather alive. Right? Those who maybe set their minds on these things, the... Um, sensual things of the world or the jealous ways or um, being able to to not worry about drinking and excess or the like. I mean, some of those people at times, depending on what snapshot of their um, engagement in those things, it may look or be contorted by the devil to look like it's a great thing. They sure look alive, look like they're enjoying it. They're living it up. They're having a great time. Well, that's what the devil wants us to think, right? But truly to set your minds on those things is death. And as it also says in Romans 8, to do that is not only death, but it's hostile to God. Not just against God. That's a strong word, Romans 8, to use. You're hostile, which means actively against. That's strong. Also, those on the flesh don't submit to God's law. It can't. 
these are and these are things I'm as I'm stating these these are directly out of our scripture just I'm kind of compiled the different verses into one list you're set on the flesh you literally cannot submit to God's law because you're not thinking about God's law you're not trying to so you're literally going to do everything against it and it cannot please God no matter how much you try if you're only th- thinking about the flesh you cannot please God it will simply not be possible so in the contrast you see the spirit which means those who are in the spirit are set free you're setting the minds on the things of the Spirit, which, as we see in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, if you're sitting at home and you want to sing your song, go for it. Uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Um, small side note, there's a if you Google, if, or not Google, go to YouTube and type in Fruits of the Spirit song, like one of the first hits you'll get is a children's song. And it's hilarious because it just... It literally has a bunch of fruit, like grapes, apple, and orange, um, saying, oh, the fruit of the Spirit's not a grape. You know, it's not a grape. It's not a grape. But it's, and then it goes and sings the song. Anyways, uh, look it up. It's really funny. Usually I get kind of these quizzical looks from the middle school kids when I share it with them. But So, set your minds on the things of the Spirit. That's what the things of the Spirit are. But as it says in Romans, the things of the Spirit are also life and peace which are key words for us today in these readings, life and peace. Um, and it, the Spirit dwells in you. You belong to God. You're alive. And again, life does not mean necessarily physical life because we know at times death happens. But God gives life not only now, but also to come. And again, I think this is just God giving us His Word. I mean, His Word's always at the right time. You open His Word, no matter when um, and where you're looking, He's going to give you the words that you need to hear. Um, and so again, we look at those scripture, Romans eight, and we need to hear this now. We got a world that's honestly, there's a lot of panic and concern and, and we need to hear that we need to set our minds on God's things because when we set our minds on God, he gives life and peace. And that doesn't mean he makes everything better and everything's hunky-dory. It may, there likely be trials. I mean, you've got the author of this is Paul. Paul wrote, is the author of Romans. I mean, Paul's the author that God used to write his word. But Paul wrote Romans. His life wasn't hunky-dory. He had plenty of challenges. But he had life and he had peace in the midst of that. So especially at this time, but all times, we need to set our minds on God's things. Which also leads me to say that... Um, Sometimes, you know, terrible things can happen in our world and in our lives that drive us to God. And you might, and some might be tempted to say, well, you should have believed in God before. You should have been trusting in Him. It shouldn't just take these terrible things to happen. Could you say theoretically that's true? Maybe, but also God can use all things. And I'd be very careful when I say that. I want you to hear me clear and say that I'm not saying this is a good thing that what's happening Um, these illnesses and these concerns in our counties and our states and the like. I'm not saying it's good. It's not. But I am saying we can trust in God and know that even the terrible things we experience, He can use to bring us more to Him. Maybe bring more people. Maybe strengthen those who are already in Him. The point is, whatever it is, look, turn to God. Let's turn to God now. And when this stuff passes, because it will, let's keep turning to God. Don't let this be a temporary thing, but keep turning to God. So, um, I am running short on time. We're at 40 minutes, so I better get going because John chapter 11 to me is such a powerful one. Um, one last thing I do need to say on Romans 8 before we go on. We need to remember 
Because I'm talking to you who are listening, who are likely believers already. Maybe not. If you're not, great. Um, Pray God's word um, is heard in your heart too. But verse 9 says, because remember, Romans is written to the churches, so to believers. So these words are written to believers, and these words as us listening and studying it now are believers. It says, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. So I want to remember a quote that was said by one of my seminary professors. He said, remember, when you're up there preaching, you're preaching to the baptized. So don't just hammer them like they're not baptized and they're not believers. And I think that's what I hear here, right? Remember, you're listening to this. You're a believer. You're not a person of the flesh. Yes, at times you and I, we fall into the flesh. We've been guilty of those, the, unfortunately, that list of things. Um, hopefully not us of all those things. But maybe at times you've been guilty of lying or um, cheating in some way or idolatry in some way. Just because we fall into those sins doesn't mean that we're just a pagan who deserves to die and never have God. But rather, we get to know that, yeah, that's not who we are. We've done those things, but who we are are the baptized in Christ. I think that's a powerful message to always remember. Who are we? We're Christ. We're his people, his children, and we're his baptized. Um, but at times we fall and we, we fail, but that's why we have him to strengthen us and give us life over and over again. So, let's conclude with our epistle and let's move to the Gospel of John. Because for Sunday, March 29th, the assigned reading in the lectionary this year is John chapter 11. And yes, I literally mean John chapter 11. (laughs) Um, If you look in the lectionary assigned, it's, it's the entire chapter. So that is 57 verses. So here's what we're going to do for this. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read all 57 verses to you. I would strongly encourage you to read all 57. Um, maybe press pause and go read it and then come back and listen to what I have to say. Or after we're finished here, um, go back through and read it again um, to get the full account. Because really to understand, you need all 57. Because um, there's just such a, an incredible story, um, account of God that's written in here. So I'm just going to highlight some things. Um, if we were having worship on site in our bulletins would probably be only verses 17 through maybe about 37 or so. So just a quick scan. If you go back to get to verse 17, you need to know who's, who's involved here. So John chapter 11, we are, we have this man, Lazarus. And as it describes in the first few verses of John 11, you have Lazarus who was of Bethany. So that's where he is. That's the Lazarus we're talking about. And he is um, brother to Mary and Martha. And this is the Mary who anointed Jesus with her hair, as it says in verse 2. And the problem is, Lazarus is ill. He's sick. Um, Also, a point to note, so you have Lazarus, who's related to Mary and Martha. He's loved by them. But also, as it says in the beginning of chapter 11, he's loved by Jesus. It says there in verse 3, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, we hear this word ill um, I don't know about you, but I think of like, okay, he's got a cold. <laughs> Just like, okay, yeah, he's a little bit sick. Nope, this is not some small thing. He's very ill. So much so, as if you probably already know the account, he's going to die. So that's the situation that he has. And the, then what happens in John 11 is he go. the sisters tell Jesus, Lazarus is ill. He's not well, he's going to die. And what I think is striking here, is John chapter 11, verse 5 and 6. It says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So he loves them. 
And when he, so when he heard that Lazarus was, was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place he was. Okay. Jesus isn't with, with Lazarus here. He's somewhere else, but they come to him and they tell him, Hey, he's ill. And it, 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 to me, it's interesting. And this could be a translation thing. Admittedly, I didn't get my Greek out here. Uh, maybe I should have, but it says Jesus loved him. So when he heard, he stayed two days longer, which just to me is difficult. Okay. He loves him. So he doesn't go take care of what they need and, or what they want. I should say what they want and what he's capable of doing. He stays kind of puzzling. Um, but then the verse 15, it tells us a little bit more about this. This is verse uh, 15 or buzz back up 14, John 11, verse 14. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Sounds odd um, at first read, especially can you imagine if you're them? He says, hey, I'm glad he died because this is for your sake. I would never say that to someone who's lost someone um, because that just sounds terrible. But he's Jesus and he's got a whole different plan in mind. And can you imagine what they thought of? Like, yeah, for our sake, what? This doesn't make sense. Probably grieving, hurting, right? But he says, for your sake and so that you may believe. Which, um, reminder, in the book of John is essentially the whole purpose. I mean, arguably you could say that about scripture, but John's gospel literally says at the end of it, these things are written so that you may believe that he is the Christ, the son of God. So the point is, is he wants to turn them um, towards him to believe and trust in him. So we go on um, in verse 17, Jesus came, he found that Lazarus has already been dead in the tomb four days. Now, uh, there are some who talk about this and say this could be, be this could be said the four days um, because there's some, I would, I would say, false belief that a soul hovers over the body. Um, I, one, I wouldn't agree with that. And two, I think we just got to look at it. It's four days. Again, we want to be careful not to be crass because we're talking about someone who's died. But he's very dead. There's no thing that happened. I mean, even you talk about our world today, these medical miracles where someone, I mean, medically dies and yet they're revived minutes later or so. It's amazing. This is four days, okay? There's nothing they're going to be able to do. So then Jesus comes to them, and uh, he's talking with them. They say they wish he would have been here. And then verse 25 and following, Jesus says, I am the resurrection of life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That is a powerful statement. Uh, if you're familiar with it, it's used in funeral services often. I know at St. Paul's we use this in just about every single funeral service. We speak this actually um, in a responsory with the people. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and life who believes in me, even though he dies. So even, though even though there's physical death, there's life. Everyone who lives and believes in me never die. Again, that doesn't mean you're never going to die in the sense of physically die, because we will. That's a fact. Well, unless Jesus comes back. If Jesus comes back today, then we're just simply taken into heaven with him. Um, the fact of human bodies is we die. But it says we shall never live because spiritually we get to be with him eternally. And that is an incredibly hopeful statement to be able to say. That is hope. Okay? And that is so much hope that people need to hear, especially in the face of death. So we go on. 
And I know I'm taking this kind of quickly. I apologize for that. I just really want to get to the um, latter part of this account. So he says this, and she says, Yes, Lord, I believe. That's an amazing statement of faith. Arguably only one she could make because the Spirit worked in her heart and Jesus in front of her. So um, goes on, verse 28 and following. They get to Jesus, uh, or Jesus is there. And look at verse 33. John chapter 11, verse 33. Jesus sees her weeping. And the Jews who had come with her also weeping. And he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, I read this initially without doing study. And, I, and most people, and you think, okay, he's sad. He's moved. Um, a lot of scholars think that this is um, troubling in the sense of like anger. Uh, one, could be because his friend died. Um, two, because of, could be because of mourners who are mourning without hope. Um, I think the second lends a lot to what's to come. But then verse 34, Jesus says, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. So they take Jesus to see their friend, whom he loves too. And when he sees him, what happens? Shortest verse in the whole Bible, Jesus wept. And this, to me, is one of the most striking things that I think we as people here and now need to hear. Jesus saw someone he loved dead, and he cried. He was sad, because death is sad. And yet, Jesus, who's God and who knows what he's going to do, knows that just verses later, he's going to raise him from the dead. In verse 43, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And yet, even though he knows the hope of the resurrection that's about to happen, that he's about to do, he cries. Because even in the face of death, with the hope of the resurrection, death is sad. So it's okay and it's I would argue, say it good to cry. We should mourn death. Death is a sad thing. But we mourn with hope. We mourn knowing there's resurrection. So we go on, and I'll talk more about this. We'll go on to verse 39. They say to him, Jesus, there's an odor by now. Again, points to the fact he is dead. There is no life that humans could do for him. He's been dead four days. Jesus says, if you believed, you'd see the story, you would see the glory of God. Then, verse 42, on account of the people standing around that they may believe, he says, so his word, again, the power is in his word, he speaks, come out. And there's life, he comes out alive, raised from the dead. That's amazing. Okay, Jesus literally speaks and brings life to someone who is dead. And not just like a, a revival that people are able to do today. And thanks be to God that our medical professionals could do that. But literally four days dead in the tomb with an odor, he brings life to what is completely lifeless. So um, in kind of closing here, I want to wrap up and say that this is the hope we need to have, that we get to have. That even in the face of death and sadness and lifeless things that we experience in this world, we have hope. And it's okay to cry. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to weep. Jesus did. But he also did with a hope knowing what he would do. And so we do with a hope knowing what he does for us. So uh, wrap all of this up. I think that just, again, God timing because his word always speaks to us. Um, but we got a lot going on in our world and our country today. And I seriously pray that today you would hear from God's word some hope and peace that he has for you. Because truly his spirit is with you and he gives life and he gives you hope. And it's only through him alone that we have that. Uh, but may God continue to bless you in your study. Uh, may he continually keep you in his word, both now in these challenging times and in the times that will come with, with less challenges or different challenges. But um, 
may that be what God does for you. Amen. Thank you very much. I hope you have a good rest of your day and continue to be in God's Word.